our fourth week of walking through uh, these first two chapters of Matthew, the Christmas story as we think of it. And uh, we began four weeks ago with a first sermon about Israel's history pointing to Jesus Christ. And of course, that was the genealogy, wasn't it? And that genealogy points that there is a record that is available and can be looked at, and it shows that you can trace Joseph, right, the earthly adoptive father of Christ, of Jesus, back to David and to Abraham. And that's very important because if he's going to be the seed of Abraham, you must be able to track his lineage back to Abraham. If he's going to be the, the seed and heir of David, you must be able to track his lineage back to David. And of course, that's exactly what that chapter does, or at least the first half of that chapter does. And then if you were to continue to look in it, and for some reason my pages here do not want to cooperate, but if you were to uh, turn back and look at it um, in that section, you would see not only that it does that, but it makes the point that uh, this, there is an amazing truth in this because, again, there are 14 generations that separate Abraham and David and, and David in the Babylonian captivity and then, of course, the Babylonian captivity until the coming of Christ. And so this is no accident. This is no uh, just happenstance of history. This is God working. And as Paul will say in Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God brought all these things together, all these things together. And we can rejoice in that. And then, of course, we would ask the question, because it leaves us there with the fact that uh, the one that's begotten, if you will, from this line is actually Joseph. And you say, well, how does this then apply to Christ? And we look at that the next week. As Joseph is told, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, to adopt the son, to name him, and all of this. And it's, as we talked about, Robert France said, it's in that act that Jesus is therefore an heir of David and of Abraham. Abraham more broadly, but, uh, but David specifically as that heir. And if you want to think about what Paul says as the singular seed, then it's very specific even there in reference to Abraham. So again, all of this is to tie this back to Israel's history and to remind us of who this child is. But it even goes beyond that because he is told what he must name him, that he must name him Jesus. And this, of course, is an important name, Yeshua, uh, the name of Joshua in the Old Testament, this great saving figure, this uh, one who his name means God's salvation. He is the one uh, that, uh, that Joseph is told will be the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14, And that prophecy given to Isaiah is that there would be a child born of a virgin, that his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Of sort, certainly all these things point to Christ and are fulfilled in him. He is the one who is God's salvation. He is the one who is the seed of Abraham. He is the one who is the heir of David, David's greater heir. He is the one who is God with us. The fulfillment of all those pictures of the tabernacle and the temple and all those things, they all point to Jesus. And he wants us to know that. And then as we got into chapter 2, we saw that these wise men or magi come and visit at great distance. They come to seek out the king of the Jews. And we spoke of the significance of that last Sunday. There is much significance to it, much mystery in it. Uh, We talked about it last Sunday that we don't really know how God Uh, brought this to be, how he wrought this sign in the the sky. Thursday night, uh, there was some discussion about it being a star. We don't know. I mean, it definitely says it travels and stops and moves again. Um, But again, uh, it is a mystery to us, isn't it? It is a mystery to us. 
But what we certainly know is that these wise men were led by the intervention of God to this moment to come and worship this king of Israel. And of course, much of the story that follows is set in motion by the events that we read last Sunday morning. If it wasn't for these wise men, Herod would not have known. Right? The events that we read about today are set in motion by these very things. And so again, we would just remind ourselves without going through the entire thing again that Herod is a wicked man. He doesn't seek to worship the king as he uh, told the wise men. We know he has other purposes, but he tells them, when you find him, on your way back out, stop by and tell us where he's located. I want to go give him homage as well, pay homage to him as well. So again, all of this uh, is, is, as we see, part of this story, and it shows us that God is intervening in the story, and we want to look at that a little bit more today. So over the past four weeks, we've seen all these events coming together in these first two chapters of Matthew. And we started four weeks ago with Israel's history, points to Jesus Christ. Today we're going to kind of bring these two chapters to a close with Israel's prophecies point to Jesus Christ. And that is in fact what it shows. And we'll see that today as several prophecies will be directly pointing to Jesus Christ and fulfilled in Him. Now as we look at that, we're going to read the text one more time. And then uh, we'll get about the business here. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelled in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. As we look at this text today, I want us to look at two points. First of all, the intervention of God, and second of all, the fulfillment of prophecies. So beginning first with the idea of the intervention of God, this story has been about that and continues to be about that. You see over and over again uh, how God is directing things and uh, involved in this story every step of the way. Uh, We mentioned a moment ago uh, that last Lord's Day morning we uh, saw the story of the Magi, their entrance. They're called by a miraculous sign that no man could manufacture. Uh, That's an act and work of God, a miracle of God. Uh, certainly a star that could direct you to a specific location 
is a miraculous event uh, because uh, all of us know that you couldn't make uh, much hay of looking at a star and getting to a specific location. You could see a direction to go, but it would be hard to imagine how that would lead you to a very specific place. And it says that it stopped and stood still over the place where Jesus was born. And so again, this is some kind of miraculous phenomena. And we saw last morning that these three specific visitors themselves, their involvement in the story is mysterious to us. Uh, we know that God had been at work uh, probably on this from uh, many, many years before. Uh, we talked last Sunday about, uh, we're speculating, but it makes sense that it could have been through Daniel's work. Daniel was amongst the Magi, in fact, over the Magi in Babylon, and then he was taken uh, to the Medo persian territory uh, when, when Babylon was uh, conquered. And so we know again that these Magi likely came, most likely came from Persia. And so again, uh, it would make sense there that Daniel, as a great witness for the Lord, was sharing these things. But they see this star, this sign in the heavens, and it leads them. And again, that speaks to the intervention of God in the story. And we see it over and over again. He directs their way every step of the way. And, you know, they make their way to Herod and they tell Herod they're looking for the king. All of Jerusalem's in an uproar. We talked about this last week. All distressed, that's the word that's used, distressed, at the news. We spoke about why that is. The people of Jerusalem knew the danger involved in the birth of a rival king to Herod. I mentioned last week that Herod's lifelong friend, Mark Antony, uh, famously said of him that it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Because if you were Herod's son, you were in great danger, more danger than being his pig. He was more likely to kill you, seeing you as a rival to his throne, than the pig for dinner. And so again, and uh, as an Idumean, he wouldn't have had a problem with, with killing either. But again, it was considered dangerous to be around Herod. To be an advisor to Herod meant you could die. Two of Herod's wives had been put to death by Herod because he was convinced in his mind that they were somehow stirring up uh, some activity. And so again, we see that this was a man who had no problem putting anyone to death that he saw as a rival. And so these wise men come and say to the imposter king of Israel, a man who has no right to the throne, he is not a Jew, he is an Idumean. Put on the throne, how? We talked about this last Sunday, by Caesar, at the request of Herod's best friend, Mark Antony, who had a lot of influence in Rome, of course. Um, and so that's how he got his position. But the Jews hated him. They hated him. He knew there was great danger in his position. And so he ruled with an iron scepter, if you will, crushing and destroying any of his opponents. And so again, word comes to him of a Messiah being born. He knows what this is. He knows these promises. He has no question. We saw this last Sunday. He immediately asks, asks the question, where is this child to be born? What does the scriptures say? What do they say? In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem of Judea. And so again, he says, okay, you guys go. Do what you're going to do. And on the way back, give me the exact location he is. I mean, why kill lots of children if you can just kill the one? That's what he's thinking, right? I can just eliminate the one thread and be done with it. But as we saw last Sunday, God warns them, doesn't he? Do not return to Herod. Do not return to Herod. Again, God's intervention in the story. 
God intervenes with Mary. God intervenes with Joseph, intervenes with the wise men multiple times over. We see it over and over again. God directly bringing this story uh, together. So this well-known despot and murderer, Herod, is not going to give up just because the uh, wise men thwart his plan, is he? I mean, if you know anything about him, he would have no problem putting hundreds of people to death. The only concern he would have had with that is if word got back to Rome and that there was instability in the region, something that would question whether or not he should remain in a position of authority. The idea that he would put to death, historians say, maybe 20 children is what it would have taken to get rid of all the kids under the age of two in this area. That would have been a blip on his radar. That would just be Tuesday afternoon for Herod. And he had no problem putting people to death. He put, his, like I said, his own family members to death. This was nothing to him. And people make much of history not recording this massive massacre. Twenty children in Bethlehem uh, would not have been significant historically. I mean, I hate to say it, but it just isn't. And in Herod's reign, it wouldn't have been surprising. Read about the man. It would not have been surprising. And so again, as we look at this, we see that's exactly what Herod decides to do. I'll just put together anybody that can fulfill or could be a, uh, I should say, be a candidate for Messiahship in this entire region. So I'm going to kill every child, two or under, in Bethlehem and its surrounding district. And that's what he does. That's what he does. Now, God has warned the Magi, but if we look at today's text, He intervenes again in the story, and it says, Now when they, meaning the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. Now again, this is God saying, Go to a place of safety. Get up, leave this place, go into Egypt where Herod has no reach. He can't do anything there. And that's exactly what Joseph does. It says that he got up, took his child and his wife, and they went to Egypt where they would be safe. And they stayed there. They stayed there until again God calls them to leave Egypt and to return to Israel. Now, obviously, we could give example after example after example again of God intervening in the story, God uh, orchestrating, if you will, this story. You see it time and again, but in fact, the entire meta-story here, the entire overarching story is the story of God's intervention, isn't it? It's about God bringing a Savior into the world. I said a moment ago, I quoted Galatians 4.4. It's a text we quote all the time and the Christmas season, but what does it tell us? In the fullness, in the pleroma of time, that word pleroma, perfectly filled. Uh, Think about a cup of water. It's being at that point so full that one more drop of water, it would overflow. One less drop of water, and it wouldn't be perfectly full. What it's saying is in exactly the right moment of time, God brought forth His Son. And more than that, He tells you how He did it. Born of a woman, and born under the law, and for the purpose of redeeming those under the law that they might receive the adoption of sons. So again, all of that is told to us that God has orchestrated all this and for a divinely orchestrated purpose of salvation. We mentioned last week, if God had not done it, we would be left in our sins. We would be a people without hope if God had simply said, they're sinners, they disobeyed, all descendants of, of Adam are just lost. 
Nothing I'm going to do. They don't deserve it. If he had chosen to do that, then my friends, we would be without hope. But we can thank our God that he is a God of redemption and sent his son into the world to save sinners like you and I. And so all of this is in the orchestration of God, working out his plan and will throughout time. And we see it time and again. God intervenes to bring this story as it's presented to us. And Matthew doesn't hide any of that. Matthew shows over and over again God sending messengers and messages and God intervening time and again. And it's in fulfillment of prophecy. Central to what Matthew is doing in this passage is showing us that these events do not happen in a vacuum. Not a historical vacuum, not in a theological vacuum. They do not happen in a vacuum. They happen according to the fulfillment of God's promises. Not haphazardly, not really even all that mysteriously. He tells you along the way, here's how he does it, and here's why he does it, and here's what it fulfills. Matthew's like, I'm telling you these things. As you read this, I'm giving you a report. Now, we've already had several things like that along the way. The fulfillment, if you will, implied of the promise given to Abraham of a seed, singular, points to Christ, chapter 1. That he's going to be the heir and seed of David, David's greater heir, the the, uh, recipient of the throne of David. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 as well, right? That's why the wise men come to worship the king. That he is the Savior, the Messiah. He is the anointed one. That is told in chapter 1. That He is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. That He is Emmanuel. Already told to us all these scriptures being implicitly or explicitly filled in all the things that were given by Matthew inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet we come now to some very specific prophecies again. He goes into Egypt. Into Egypt. And... By the way, I skipped in chapter 2 the uh, fulfillment of his birth being in Bethlehem, right? That's the very thing we talked about a moment ago where Herod says, uh, give me my experts. Where is the Messiah to be born? Well, of course, in Bethlehem, in the land of Judea. Excuse me, in the land of Judah. And so again, we see all these fulfillments. But we come to today's text and we see it again. Because he says that he went into Egypt... And he escaped danger and went there and found safety. And then at Herod's death, he came back into the land. And this was for what purpose? Just an accident of history? Just a series of random events? No. That it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, what Matthew says is, here's the fulfillment of what Hosea wrote in the first verse of chapter 11 of his prophecy. And immediately, like in so many uses of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the liberal theologians go crazy. They say, what are you talking about, Matthew? What are you talking about? That is not at all what Hosea is speaking about. And we could turn back to Hosea chapter 11 and we could look at it and we could say, yeah, it does seem like Hosea is speaking about Israel going uh, into Egypt and then being called out in the Exodus. That is literally what it seems like Hosea is talking about. And so again, the liberal theologians accuse Matthew and all the New Testament authors of misusing the Old Testament Scriptures. And I don't know how many times we've addressed this over the last five years, going through Romans and Hebrews. They're wrong, obviously. They're wrong. 
Because what Matthew recognizes is that all of the promises and activity of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ. All of it. And so even in this event, which does seem to be Hosea talking about Israel going into the land of Egypt and being brought out, would remind any Jew, and it is Jews to whom Matthew is writing, of the events that took place in Genesis, in which God took His Son Israel in the days of danger to Israel and led them into Egypt first. Now we could take some time and go back in that story, couldn't we? But there was a famine coming. And the brothers took Joseph and sold him into slavery into Egypt. And later, when it's revealed to the brothers that Joseph has not died, but he is now Pharaoh's right-hand man, and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The purpose that you had was evil. It's not excused. But God had a superintending purpose in all of it. That you would be delivered into Egypt. For what purpose? For the saving of Israel. That there would be food in a time of famine. That you would come down and take the land of Goshen. That you would dwell here as a favored people, as Abraham was promised. Right? They would be strangers in a strange land. They would, be, uh, they would go into a strange land and they would eventually come out and take the promise. But again, all these things in fulfillment of prophecy. So any Jew that knew their scriptures would say, just as Israel was one day taken by God into Egypt for its safety and brought back out of Egypt, Jesus, that's a shadow of Jesus. We've talked often about how Matthew portrays the history uh, of Israel as being relived in Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus. Here's another example. Jesus, just like Israel, goes into Egypt for safety's purpose and comes out, called out of Egypt and uh, for God's purpose. So again, Matthew says, Israel foreshadowed what God is doing in Christ and He fulfills it. It is actually to the point where he can say, this is fulfilled in Jesus, not in Israel, but Israel, if you will, is fulfilled in Jesus, in a sense. And so again, we see that. Well, again, people say, oh, I'm not comfortable with that. Well, my friends, much of the scriptures used in the New Testament are in this very way of saying they they happened, but they're fulfilled again and in a greater measure in Christ. These things foreshadowed Christ. You're going to see it again. Because all we have to do is look at the very next prophecy that's mentioned in today's text. He talks about the death of the innocents. And he says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And again, many of our experts will tell us, Oh no, what's Matthew doing here? Turn to Jeremiah 31. This has got nothing to do with Jesus. This is about the weeping that went on in the days of the Babylonian captivity as mothers watched their children being carried off into exile. They wept and could not be consoled for they knew they would not see their children again. They would be no more as if to them. No more will I see my children, my child. I can't be comforted. Can you imagine? As the wicked 
enemies of God carry your children off, you know you're not going to see them again. There's no comfort or consolation there. But again, these liberal scholars would say, see, Matthew's playing kind of fast and loose with the Old Testament text. But the question is, is he? Is he? Again, to find that answer, let's turn to Jeremiah 31. The very text he's quoting here. Now I'm going to ask you for a moment to think about this text if you're familiar with it. Because Jeremiah 30 through 33 is an incredible section of the Scriptures that comes right after, obviously, 25 through 29. Basic math tells you that. But it's important to think about the composition of what Jeremiah is uh, prophesying through the power of the Spirit. 25 through 29 speaks largely of the coming of the Babylonians. That they are to be a dominant world power. And it's not just basically a threat to Judah, it's a threat to all the nations. As Jeremiah talks about this Babylonian uh, power that will be uh, predominant, if you will, will be a dominating force in the world. And yes, it has specific application to Judah because he says God is sending them to you to conquer you and to take you off into slavery. You will have a yoke upon your neck, a Babylonian yoke. Now, Uh, Other prophets have said the same thing. Jeremiah says it powerfully. And so, if you were reading 25 through 29, you'd say this is a a message without much hope. We've sinned against a holy and righteous God. We didn't keep the covenant that He gave us. We're a people who have turned in every way to idolatry. By the way, just turn back to Psalm 78, the section we read for today. It's talking about this Various thing earlier happening again now in this text. As the people turn toward idols, disobey the living God who has given them a land and a promise. And again, you would say, well, what, what is there for us? Now, as we read through the scriptures, we know that every time it seems that God brings this hammer down upon his people, this word in which he says, Uh, that destruction is coming, devastation is coming. It's always followed with a a word of promise. We've spoken often about Isaiah chapter 6, that famous passage where Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord, send me. What's the mission you have for me, Lord? Well, to preach to a people having ears will not hear, people who will not respond. How long, O Lord, would you call me to do this? Until the cities are laid waste. We've talked about this lately. It's an important promise in line with what Jeremiah is talking about here. The tree will be cut down, he says, to a stump. It will be cut down to a stump. Your nation, which you take so much pride in, you love, is about to be chopped down. Much like what Jesus tells the disciples in his day, right? This temple, you think it's so impressive. Let me tell you, one day not one stone will be left on top of another. Destruction's coming. There'll be a stump. I said for many years, we had a stump of a tree in our, on our playground that had been cut down, and it sprang back to life. Right in the middle of it, it started growing again up, and eventually we knew we had to take that thing out, but I hated taking it out because it was like, just look out those windows and you'll see exactly what Isaiah's hearing. Life will remain in the stump and will sprout again. 
God will preserve a remnant that will come back into the land. The promise will be kept alive. Not by you, but by God. By God. Now, if you want to just take Isaiah 6 as a blueprint for the longer section here, 25 through 33, it's the exact same message. Destruction's coming. Devastation coming. Judgment coming. You've deserved it. But in verses or chapters 30 through uh, 32, you begin to see something, excuse me, 33, you begin to see something different, a promise. Now we could go through all of it, and it would be worth doing, but time won't permit it today. If you look at chapter 31, the chapter that we're referring to here, and you look at the very first verse, it says, At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Now, what is that same time? Well, if we turn back to the previous chapter, we'll find something amazing. Chapter 30. In this promise of a coming hope, there's something said here. Look at verses 8 and 9. For it shall come to pass in that day, this is the day of promise, the day that he's talking about here, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck. A yoke will be broken. And will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God. And all the people hearing this in the Babylonian captivity said, Amen. That's what we're looking for. A day when the yoke shall be broken, we shall be freed from our bonds. But look at what it says that day will be, when that day will be. Because it's not fulfilled simply in returning to the land. Cyrus's activity does not fulfill this because it says, And David their king... Excuse me, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. When they returned into the land, they didn't have the Davidic heir on the throne. But this story is about the Davidic king coming. The story that Matthew is saying, refer back to that section of Jeremiah. And by the way, all these complications that the theologians have with all these references are cleared up if you simply go back and don't just read a single verse, but put it in the context of the entire section. How many times in Romans, when you went back and looked at the entire section, could you understand the reference when most of the scholars say it makes no sense? It makes no sense. Again, when you look at this entire section, God is speaking not only of the day of returning in the land, but the day in which He will fulfill the promise He made to David of an heir on the throne. You will serve the Lord your God, and you will serve David your king. David's dead. David is dead here. We're talking about the heir of David. And notice, whom I will raise up for them. Intervention of God, we could go back to point one, couldn't we? God says, I'm going to provide the Davidic king. Matthew says, Amen. Let me tell you about that. We go to chapter 31, back to the section that we're in. And I just want you to look here for a moment, because again, people say this is a reference ultimately to the children of Israel being carried off into captivity. Of course it is, but is it exhausted there? Look at what's said here. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. This is verse 10, I'm sorry. And declare it in the isles far off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion.'" 
streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new oil or new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd their soul shall be like a well-watered garden and they shall sorrow no more at all then the virgin rejoice then the virgin shall rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together for I will turn their mourning into joy listen to that line there I will turn their mourning into joy I will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Now, here's where the the theologians, the liberal theologians say, see, the promise is fulfilled when they return to the land. And if you're looking only at, say, verses 10 through 17, you could find that explanation satisfying. And you could say, maybe Matthew's going a little off script here. Except it isn't exhausted only here. You have to look at chapters 30 through 33 and see there is more to the promise than just returning into the land. There is the promise of a Davidic king. There is a promise of those who are weeping being comforted. And my friends, there is promise in verse 31 of a new covenant. If you will, just look over on my Bible. In my Bible, it's the next page. Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Notice again a reference to taking the people of Israel into Egypt. And what all of this is pointing out to you is a couple of things. By Matthew referring back to this chapter, he's asking you to go back and think about the theology of this chapter and the larger section that there was a promise of one day a king coming, a Davidic king coming, who would be the one through whom this new covenant would be offered and the one through whom all of our weeping would be consoled. You may remember, we talked a little bit about Simeon Thursday night. He was waiting for what? The consolation of Israel. The one who would console his people. He's waiting on the one who would turn mourning to joy. Weeping to rejoicing. This is the one. Matthew says this is the one. It is Christ. And just as history one time recorded the people of Israel being taken into slavery into Egypt and then brought back out. So God takes His Son into Egypt and brings them out, brings Him out. And just as there was one day weeping in the day of the exile in which the children of Israel were taken away, God said, I will bring them consolation. Now there's weeping again in this story, isn't there? There's mothers who are weeping over the murder of their children. And God says, 
all this story ties together. Because the consolation that was mentioned in Jeremiah 31 is the consolation that has appeared in this child, this Savior. He is the consolation. He is the one who brings hope and salvation. He is the one that verse 31 and this new covenant is all about. This didn't happen when they entered the land again, did it? It happened when Christ came. He is the one in whom there is a new covenant written, if you will, in His blood. And so again, is Matthew being unfaithful to what Jeremiah is saying in these chapters? No way. He's saying there are mothers weeping again who need consolation. That consolation is given by God in Christ Jesus. And by the way, in quoting that, go back and read that section and see that it was always about Jesus. He's the one who was promised. He is the one coming. And let me give you one last prophecy. This will be very quick. There's not much can be said about it. But it says that when he came back, he was going to go back in Judea. But they heard about Archelaus ruling Archelaus as evil as his father. So they said, okay, we'll go back into Galilee. And so they go to Nazareth. And it says, all this in fulfillment which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And again, the scholars go nuts. They say, where can you find that in the Old Testament? There is no such verse in the Old Testament. And we're like, that would be really clever if Matthew had not already told you that. Matthew already told you there's not that verse in the Bible. How do we know that? Well, first of all, look at what he says in verse 15 in the first prophecy that's fulfilled. He says, that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. There's a specific prophet you can turn to and read this said. Go to the next one. He gives a little bit more. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. He gives you not only that a prophet said it, but who the prophet was. But he doesn't say that with this, does he? He says, then that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. Prophets. Matthew's not referring to a single verse here to say I'm banking this. When you try to do it that way, you end up with much complication and confusion. Because people go, oh, this is back to Judges and it's about the Nazarite vow. How are you going to tie that in? Well, there are some other verses that we might go to. But when you look at what he's saying here, he's talking about being a Nazarene. There's a couple of interesting ways this ties in. We don't have time this morning. Nazarene is tied to the word root. He is the righteous root. But also, we know this about Nazareth. It is a place you would never expect a king to come from. You would never expect a king to come from. All we'd have to do is turn to chapter 1 of John's Gospel. And there is a question asked, isn't there? Can anything good come from Nazareth? In other words, you're trying to sell me that this is the Messiah, and your very next line is, he's from Nazareth. Like, do you want any credibility at all? The king will come from Jerusalem, or, or maybe the prophet says Bethlehem. But he's not going to come from Nazareth. Now, what does Matthew mean when he says this fulfills the word of the prophets? That Jesus would be a righteous king, rejected by his people, scorned by his people. One verse, one chapter you could go to, Isaiah 53. He would not be what you'd expect. 
He would not be impressive. He would not be, if you will, like the first king of Israel. Because that king was impressive to look at, wasn't he? A head taller than every other man in all the land. He was picked for his impressiveness. This king's more like David. David's own father said, you don't want him. Jesse said, oh, no, I didn't even bring him out. I didn't even bring him out for you to look at because he's not like his brothers. They're bigger. They're impressive. No, he's, he's small. He's ruddy-complected. He's not the makings of a king. But the prophet said, man looks on the outside. God looks in the heart. My friends, when you think about this, what Matthew is saying is, All the scriptures in their totality point to Jesus. If you read the scriptures, understood them, and cherished them, you would have recognized Him. It's only when you construct a Messiah that isn't predicted by the scriptures that you begin to have trouble with Jesus. And by the way, that is much the message of Matthew as we continue forward, which we have done over the last few years. So again, all these References, all these prophecies fulfilled in Christ, they point to an unexpected king, the one the prophets pointed to. And so in closing, he's pointing to the larger picture of Scripture and telling us clearly that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God said was coming in the Messiah. And I'm just talking about today, I'm talking about over the last four weeks. He is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Seed of Abraham, the Heir of David. The one foreshadowed by Moses, but a greater deliverer than Moses. The one Moses pointed to. That's Hebrews, isn't it? We've just been talking about that. That Moses was faithful in all God's house, but he pointed to one who was more faithful. That is Jesus. The true and faithful servant. The true Israel. The one who both repeats and culminates Israel's history. The one in whom and in whom alone we can have life and salvation and hope and peace and consolation. It's only in Jesus. Matthew says, if I can convince you of one thing as you begin this journey through my gospel, it's this, that Jesus is the Christ. All that's been said of the Messiah is said of Him. He is the one who's been promised. He's the one Jeremiah spoke about. The one bringing a new covenant not written on tablets of stone, but written, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, on sarks or flesh heart. My friends, that's Jesus. That's whom we celebrate this time of the year, the one fulfilling all these great prophecies. He is God's great salvation. Is your hope in Him?